This morning, I asked Karen to read uh, Psalm 139. Sorry, Carol. I asked Carol to read Psalm 139 because it's a psalm that helps us know that God is intimately involved with every aspect of our lives. It's a psalm that many people find comfort and encouragement in. And this morning, before we go to Habakkuk, I've got a couple of things that I, I believe we need to talk about. Because this is somewhat of a hard passage. And yet, I think it will ultimately have incredible encouragement for us here. So let me first ask you, as a person of faith, do you expect God to help you be a happy person? Do you believe that if you are obedient to God, that God will spare you from pain? Do you think that troubles and trials, when you encounter them, are automatically because you've messed up, because maybe you've sinned, and so you're experiencing pain? Do you believe that if you sin, you've ruined God's plan for your life? That at some point, you're just going to have to deal with second best because you messed up. I think many of us know the right answer to all of those questions. And yet knowing it in your head and wrestling with the fallout of personal pain are two completely different things. J.I. Packer a theologian with a lot of wisdom, I'm reading one of his books as I'm in the process of being ordained, writes that many people misunderstanding what the Bible means when it says that God is love think that God intends a trouble-free life for everyone. God loves me, obviously. He's going to spare me from pain. I think some of us, you know, especially if you're a parent, that's what you want for your kids. You don't want them to go through agony. You want to see them have a trouble-free life. And so we project that. If that's what we think love is, we believe that's what God thinks love is. So when we encounter something painful or upsetting, they assume wrong things about God. Maybe he isn't loving after all. Maybe he isn't powerful enough to stop us from going through times of trial and testing. Or maybe, for some people, maybe he doesn't even exist at all. Even people who should know better do this. And I think I've mentioned here before, C.S. Lewis is a guy that really helped me a lot as I was growing. I, I started to understand my faith in a deeper way as I read through some of his writings. He was a man that was saved. He, he grew up being kind of an atheist, was never really explicitly Christian, started to dabble in some Buddhism, and then ultimately came to faith in Christ. And when it clicked he said everything else made sense in the world. That he understood everything because he believed that Jesus died for his sins and rose from the dead. That Jesus is the Son of God. And he started writing books on the faith. Some of you may have heard of or read Mere Christianity. It's a good book. And he started to publicly speak and testify about his faith. And he wrote more and more books. Books like The Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He became somewhat famous. He had a reputation for being the guy that understood the faith. He even wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, 
that said, pain is God's megaphone used to rouse a deaf world. That as you experience pain, you understand something is deeply broken. And that God uses that in your life to call you to him. Pain is a tool in God's hand. Wrote the book. And then his wife passed away. And he dealt with incredible bitterness and anger at God. He said he felt like a curtain had been pulled back. And he wanted to say to God, so this is really what you're like. He knew all the right answers. He had literally written books on it. And yet when his wife died, he had a terrible time understanding how God could have allowed it to happen. C.S. Lewis' story ends well. He has friends who minister to him in his pain. He ultimately wrote another book called A Grief Observed that talked about his journey back. Not everyone's story ends well, though. Some people, when they encounter pain, walk away. My prayer through the series of Habakkuk is that we would be equipped to suffer joyfully. Suffering is coming. My prayer is that we're ready for it. And so, as we look to Habakkuk, I mentioned last week the statement that I, that I hope that I demonstrated from the scriptures, I said that our loving Heavenly Father allows evil to exist for a time. Every aspect of that sentence is important. Our loving Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father, allows evil to exist for a time. It's not an accident. It's not beyond His control. He allows it to exist. We saw Habakkuk praying in desperation, verses 1 through 4 of Habakkuk chapter 1. How long, God? How long? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you act? And I talked about the reality that we can't see God's purpose from where we're at. And sometimes, even when we pray in faith, God says no. And we're left waiting. God allows pain in our lives. Yet, at the same time, He is our loving Heavenly Father. He loves us. So like the psalmist described in Psalm 132, He knows every detail about us. He's not far away. He is everywhere. He's not distant. And we need to remember that. Our loving Heavenly Father allows evil to exist for a time. This week, I'm going to take it a step further. See, not only does God allow evil to exist for a time... Our loving Heavenly Father uses evil for His sovereign purpose. Our loving Heavenly Father uses evil for His sovereign purpose. And now please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that God does anything evil ever. We serve a righteous and a holy and a pure and a good God. The book of James even says, God is not even tempted by evil. But he does use it. And I want to illustrate how, like this. And if you've ever seen a judo competition, judo is Japanese-style wrestling. 
they would probably be really offended that I referred to it that way because their, their version's older than our version. In judo, if you've ever seen two guys in a match or two girls, it looks like cats fighting. They're constantly, they're rolling everywhere. There's an incredible amount of energy. It almost looks like sort of violent gymnastics. And it's very common, throws are some of the first things that you learn. I, I achieved an orange belt in judo. So I can say they trusted a very small boy with fantastic techniques for throwing people. And you can achieve a remarkable amount of error if you're good at it. I, and I, I remember being thrown probably more than throwing people. Uh, they teach you how to fall, which is very gracious of them. But you fall from pretty high heights. And if you see someone get thrown, you would think the guy that just threw him had incredible strength. You would think that must have taken every muscle in his body to do that. He just launched. I mean, at the time, I probably only weighed like 60 pounds, so it's not that impressive. But the person that threw me was also only like 60 pounds. So you would think that kid's got some muscle. But in reality... The way judo works is you use your opponent's energy against him. You learn how to duck and you learn how to shift in such a way that with very little effort, you're able to flip your opponent and land him on his back. You harness his inertia and direct it for your own purposes. And that's what God does with evil. He doesn't cause evil but he uses it for his own purposes. And I will say there's one small difference. With judo, you use your opponent's energy to do things that you could not do in your own strength. As a 60-pound 8-year-old, I couldn't pick somebody up and throw them. God is not lacking in energy or power. So his motivation for doing this is a little bit different. And I... I'm not here to explain the Almighty exhaustively, but I want to give you two reasons why I believe that God does this. The first is it gives you an incredible glimpse into how powerful he is. That even Satan who hates him ultimately serves his purposes. You see the power of God on display as evil and wickedness are used to advance God's agenda. And the second thing, the first is God's power, the second thing is it should cause you and me to have incredible humility as we seek to serve the Lord. If you have done anything in God's service, especially if you have been blessed with seeing some fruit, you might be tempted to think, wow, look what God used me to do. And you start to feel kind of special because You've seen eternal consequences because you serve the Lord. And that's exciting and that's good. But here's the thing. All of us have to remember, God doesn't need you or me to accomplish his will. We are blessed when we are used of him and we are part of it. But his will will be accomplished with us or without us. That's why I pray very often as we take the offering in the first service or as we start any aspect of ministry, Lord, let us be part of what you're doing. We know that you're at work. We want to work with you. 
And we will be blessed as we do that. Now, we're going to get to Habakkuk in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to remind you, our loving Heavenly Father is loving. As we're talking about evil and God using evil, it's very tempting to start thinking, well, is God somehow tainted by this? The answer is no. He is perfectly pure. And yet his will is accomplished even while he allows terrible things to happen. And I want to give you one story example from the Old Testament, and then we're going to turn to Habakkuk. And when we get there, you're going to see, oh, this is why he was trying to explain it for so long before we read it. The Old Testament example is Joseph. I think it's a, a, a person that probably you've heard of, probably familiar with his story, but I just want to remind you of his life just in brief. He's the guy he's sold into slavery because his brothers hate him. He prospers as a slave. God blesses him. And then he's thrown in jail for a crime that he did not commit. He is innocent. He prospers in jail because God blesses him. And yet he is left to rot there, even while his friends who are in positions of authority and have influence forget about him. All of this starts because his brothers hate him. And yet, through the providence of God, Joseph ends up as the second in command of Egypt. We like that part of the story. We're hoping that God, as is, is you know, I am obedient, man, put me in second in command. Bless me like that. That's not God's will for most of us. Joseph ends up second in command, saves the lives of his brothers from a famine. And his brothers come and see him and recognize this, this man in effect, rules the entire world. If there's ever a man in a position of authority who could exact revenge, Joseph is the guy. And so they're fearful of their lives, and they come to him begging for forgiveness. And he says, what I want to remind you of, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Their hatred of him, their selling their brother into slavery, was not altruistically motivated. They were not trying to save the world. They hated him and they wanted him dead. And God used that evil to save his people. So keep a, keep a picture of Joseph in your head as we turn and look at the book of Habakkuk. Remember last week, Habakkuk's been praying for God's justice to rescue the oppressed, and God has been silent. He's asking how long it will be before God hears him, before God does something. And now in verse 5, we're going to read verses 5 through 11, you hear God's reply to Habakkuk. If you don't have a Bible with you, I believe you can find this passage on page 622 of the Bible in front of you. Should be a blue Bible under the seat in front of you. Thank you. Gail says it's 662. I'm going to start reading in verse 5 here. God says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. 
Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. We're going to see three things from these passages this morning. The first, Habakkuk's wait is over. God answers his prayer. And he answers it with some surprising instructions. In verse 5, God gives Habakkuk instructions for believers. God's instructions for believers. So I'm going to, as we go through it, I'll reread each section. Verse 5, God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God tells Habakkuk two things, look and wonder. Look and wonder. And I believe part of the trap that we fall into, particularly as we encounter pain in our lives, is we assume God's not doing anything. We feel like because things aren't going our way that God is either not paying attention or that he's somehow not in control. And so God tells Habakkuk, who's wrestling with that exact same feeling, look and wonder. What you see is what I'm doing. God says, look and wonder. God is active. And remember, when he says to wonder, he's not just saying, look at my incredible power, but also be amazed that what I'm about to describe does not compromise my character. I am still a loving and a righteous God. We're going to see Habakkuk continue to wrestle with that next week. This conversation isn't over. Because this is not the answer that Habakkuk expected, not in a million years. But God's first instruction to him is, if you're going to understand what I'm doing, you need to pay attention and realize I am the one that is causing this to happen. The next thing, you can see in the first half of verse 6, God's sovereign action. So first we've seen God's instructions for believers, now we're going to look at God's sovereign action. Just the first half of verse 6 here. God says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's all I'm going to say for, for right now. We're going to talk about what those Chaldeans are like in just a second. But pause and marvel that God raises up a world superpower. This is a God-sized thing. If you read history, if you're the kind of guy that enjoys looking at political intrigue, I just got a biography on Alexander Hamilton, and it's kind of exciting to see how exactly the nation was shaped. The arguments that sometimes were violent, you would think maybe those men were actually in control of what happened. It looks like just at the roll of a dice, things could have gone another way. And yet God says, I am the one who is in control. I raise up nations and I bring them down. And as God says to Habakkuk, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that means he is bringing the Assyrians down. For his sovereign purposes, the Assyrians would not accomplish his will. 
And so he raises up the Babylonians. Practically, I'll give you one major difference between the two countries. And this is just, this is how God chose to do it. He probably could have chose to do it a different way. But the Assyrians, when they judged the northern tribes, they deported thousands of people. But they didn't just deport people. They also imported foreigners who brought in foreign religions. And so if you read the New Testament and you look at the Sumerians, those are the people the Assyrians brought in. And the people they deported never come back. God uses the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdoms in a different way than he uses the Babylonians. The Babylonians, we're going to see in a second, are incredibly fierce, and they also deport people, but they don't import anybody. When the the captives in Babylon come back, they do wrestle with the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem is theirs. And they're able to be God's chosen people when they come back from captivity. And the difference in political purposes is what God used to accomplish that. He could have chosen to change the Assyrian policy and say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. But instead, he changed the course of world events, brought one kingdom down, raised another one up. God's sovereign action is on display here. I mentioned this verse. It's a good verse to remember. Proverbs 21.1. I mentioned this last week. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is an example of that. In God's sovereign purpose, he's done with Assyria, so he raises up Babylon. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear. Babylon is not a godly nation. And you see that in the following verses. So in verses 6 through 11, you see God's fearsome pawn. God's fearsome pawn described. They're nothing more than a pawn. God just uses them to accomplish his will. And yet at the same time, they are fearsome. Through the second half of verse 6 down through 11. Speaking of the Chaldeans, God says, That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. When they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. God describes the incredible destructive purpose. Its size is the breadth of the earth. They seize dwellings, they gather captives like sand. Thousands and thousands of people are deported by the Babylonians. He describes Not only their incredible destructive power, he describes their reputation. Strong countries were afraid of them. He describes their speed and fierceness. And I want you to picture this image in your mind. Sometimes an image carries something home that words can't. And God describes their speed and fierceness. Imagine a red-eyed war horse frothing at the mouth galloping at the speed of a leopard 
with the fierceness of a hungry wolf. That's what their soldiers rode as they advanced. They were quick and they were fierce and they were merciless. And if there's any doubt about their character, God describes their arrogance in toppling kings and cities. They have no mercy. And he concludes saying that they are guilty men whose own might is their God. They are self-worshipping. I entitled this message, Blitzkrieg in the Hand of the Almighty. How our good God exploits evil. And I think Blitzkrieg is an apt description of the speed and ferocity of the Babylonians at war. It's a more recent term. And you might remember, if you studied history, how the Germans would, with incredible rapidity, use multiple tactics to confuse their enemies and destroy their front lines. That kind of terror is the terror that they would have had at the Babylonians. If you want more details than I would actually care to give in this message, read the second half of 2 Kings. As you just see Nebuchadnezzar have absolutely no mercy on a rebellion, you understand these are vicious men. And yet, as awful as they are, God uses them. And it's not an accident. He does use them to judge sin. That's clear. It's part of the response to Habakkuk's prayer. I am punishing wickedness and I'm using these people. But don't miss this. This is the thing that I want to stress to you this morning. God also uses them in the life of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not the reason that God's bringing judgment down on Judah. He's a faithful prophet. And yet at the beginning of this book, Habakkuk, his heart is kind of out of tune. He has expected God to do one thing, and God has failed him from his perspective. And so he's wondering, where are you, God? He's not at a place where he is trusting that the Lord is in control. And so God confronts him and says, I am in control. Look around, understand what's happening right now is what I'm doing. He says, in effect, Habakkuk, you might be upset that I'm taking a long time to answer your prayer. Don't worry. The Babylonians have horses that are as fast as leopards and as fierce as wolves. Your answer is on its way. And Habakkuk is left to wrestle with this. We're going to talk about that more next week as you see Habakkuk's reply. He's not done. He doesn't get mad at God and quit. He continues to talk. And so we're going to see how Habakkuk wrestles with the fact that God has answered his prayer in a way that he never imagined. But this week, I don't want to minimize the reality that God calls us for long periods of time in deep distress. Sometimes saints die while they're waiting. And my prayer is that you and I will recognize that a good God can use this evil for his good and loving purposes. We can trust his goodness. And if passages like this one in Habakkuk trouble you, I want to point you directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross, we find the greatest evil in history 
accomplishing our salvation. Jesus is as perfect as the Father. He is without sin. And yet he is falsely accused. He was mocked and he was tortured. There was evil in the accusation. There was evil in the mockery. There was evil in the crucifixion. And God used all of it for the glory of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it pleased God to bruise him because not only was our salvation made possible as he bore our sins, but because the cross shows God's character with crystal clarity. You see the sacrificial love of the Father for sinful humanity, and you see the loving obedience of the Son to the Father. And as the Son is raised to life and glorified, you see the tremendous love of the Father for the Son. God doesn't send His Son to the cross because He doesn't love Him. He sends His Son to the cross ultimately because the Son is glorified. But human history didn't end at the cross. We are right now waiting for the return of our Lord. And you and I are in a place where we can experience heartache and we can experience times where it seems like God is not here and the world is out of control. And my prayer for you today is to recognize that our loving Heavenly Father uses evil to accomplish His sovereign will and that you can have hope in the midst of pain and discouragement. God's not lost control. He is in control right now. And as I close this message, I want to leave you with an image that comes from a song that we're about to sing. It's a song that I think a lot of you are familiar with. If not, we'll we'll be singing it together in just a minute. It's a song, Come Thou Fount. It says, Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. And the reality is, at the beginning of this book, Habakkuk's heart is completely out of tune. Like an instrument, like a guitar, as the room temperature changes, those strings will lose their tone. They'll be out of, they'll be out of pitch. And so the first thing you need to do if you're going to actually play an instrument and use it is you have to tune it. And our hearts are like that. As we face different circumstances, it's very easy for our hearts to get out of tune. And so this song says, Tune my heart to sing your praise because it's easy for it to get out of tune. And then later, the image that I actually want to leave you with towards the end of the song, we ask God to let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Fetters are iron shackles. They use them to chain prisoners to a wall. And if you spend enough time in them, you will have festering sores. Prisoners could die from the sores that they got from their shackles. And the song says, let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to you. The reality is that sometimes God's goodness can cause incredible pain. And yet his purpose is to use it to make you like his son, to make you holy. So if you remember the questions that I asked at the beginning of this message, does God want you to be happy? The answer is God wants you to be holy. And when you are holy, 
you will find a source of incredible joy that is uncontainable, that will carry you through the worst of circumstances. That there is a deeper source of strength than happiness that's circumstantial. There is a source of rich joy that says, my God is in control. No matter how much it hurts me, I know that his purpose is to make me holy and I can trust him. So let me encourage you today to trust him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your sovereign control and we praise you for your love. And we confess that very often we doubt both your control and your love. We pray that you would forgive us. And we ask that you would be at work in our hearts. Please give us the confidence to know that you are in complete control and we can trust you and increase our faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.